Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Alex, good to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for having me. Amazing, amazing. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Alex Levin is the CEO and co-founder of Regal.io, which builds a tech stack of powering calls, messages that provide customers with better outbound calling experience. And you've raised to date 42.1 million. Amazing. Tell us a little bit. How did Regal come to fruition? Sure. So my background is mostly in B2C businesses. And at the last business, we were bringing the purchasing of home services, you know, home improvements online. And we found that if we completely digitized that experience and made a beautiful website with perfect flows, uh, people didn't buy it. You know, some people bought it, but many fewer. But if we had a conversation with the customer, so they came in looking for a fence installation and we called them and said, hey, you know, you have a house, you know, you want a fence, tell us more they converted at a much higher rate. And so we learned that in certain industries, it's still critical to have that human-to-human connection, that conversation, before they will actually buy. It helps build trust. There's some empathy that happens. You know, you solve a complicated sort of issue that might not be solvable by the website. And so at the last company, we had thousands of people doing this. And what we learned is there was no software really focused on this space because everyone believed that you would never talk to your customer online again. So why would you need software to do this? And so we started Regal on the premise that as these businesses, like in healthcare, insurance, lending, local services, education that are high consideration, as they come online, they would need to keep that human being involved and they would want to, at huge scale, be able to treat each individual customer like a special customer, right? Treat millions of customers like one in a million. And so what our software does very well is two things. One, uses first-party data to help orchestrate which calls, which texts, which messages are said to which customer when so that you can really make sure you're talking to them correctly, you know, about what they've done, what they need to do next. And two, do it very efficiently. So at huge scale, you know, you don't have the opportunity to waste time. So you need to really be efficient in that communication to make sure it's a cost-effective motion. And we succeed because we help our customers drive incremental revenue. So say on average, our customers are able to drive about 25% more revenue using Regal than the other way. So at scale, that's very meaningful for these businesses, right? From the same 100 customers, they're able to get a lot more customers and revenue than they were before. Amazing. And you founded the company in 2020 to help brands drive more conversations with consumers and hit their goals, as you were mentioning. Now you have more than 150 brands using your solution with 40 million customer conversations. So that's impressive, Alex. Tell us a little bit, when you started early on, what was the most challenging part of selling that idea? Yeah, I think there were two groups of customers. For There was one group of customers that were already doing phone sales they understood that they needed better software. And I think their question was just around sort of what we did better than the current software. At the beginning, we focused on using first-party data to personalize the outreach. And maybe we're weaker on other parts of the platform because we hadn't developed them as much as, as we needed. And I think for people who bought into our vision, they were excited. For people that wanted us to have every feature perfect, 
when you're very early, like that's hard, right? You can't have every feature perfect. And then there was a second group of customers that were not doing phone sales today. And, you know, let's say we're an online neobank and we're sort of thinking about how do I make banking without human beings? And for them, we found that we had to proselytize. We'd have to go to them and say, well, first of all, you should have a sales team. Second, you know, you need to staff the sales team. Third, you need to then bring our software in. And so it was a much longer sales process. So we saw the same success in both cases, but because it took much longer to convince the people when they were not doing phone sales, we don't sell what we call greenfield customers today. So if you're not already making the decision to go and do this, we're not going to go after you. And we have a big enough market of customers that have B2C salespeople, so we don't need to go and proselytize. Two follow-up questions on this, because it opened up for me uh, something to think about. One is, how do you actually prioritize features? Because you cannot do everything perfectly from day one. So when you started, how did you know what to start with? And the second point is, and this is something that most listeners could face, is how do you convince someone to pay you for your software when the actual realization of value is going to happen later? Yeah, very early, a couple things like I was uh, suggest to people. First of all, it's relatively easy to raise money. It's relatively easy to convince an investor that you're going after something interesting. So don't start there. Start with convincing yourself that this is a good business because what they forget to tell you, you know, at all these places that teach you about fundraising is that the investor can write $22 million checks or whatever it is at seed. You are going to spend the next 10 years of your life doing this business. So make sure that it's something that you want to do. And before you even worry about even customers paying you, make sure that you go talk to customers and you believe that this is going to be something customers want. So we went and talked to I don't know, 100 customers before we'd done anything, just research, understand what their use case was, what they needed, what products they wanted. And we would make presentations with images of what we thought the product would be like to get their feedback. So we were actually showing them stuff and getting their feedback as to which things were important, which things were not. Unless you have somebody literally like reaching across the table and grabbing you and saying, I need that, like you don't have anything because it's not a strong enough desire. Additionally, like I recommend at the beginning, like not talking to your friends. Your friends are going to be too nice to you. They're going to say, oh, it's great. It's great. It's wonderful, Alex. (laughs) They're never going to buy. Talk to your friends of friends or talk to people that you've never met before because they're going to be rude. (laughs) They're going to tell you, sorry, I'm not going to waste my time on this. So make sure that very early you convince yourself that it's something. Then, sure, some companies want to first get customers. Some companies want to raise first. We can talk about that separately. But go into the process of raising money, getting customers. As you're talking with early customers at the beginning, you know you have to be selling from the founder, not from a random salesperson. And you have to be selling a little bit of a vision. In our opinion, you can still provide people a lot of value pretty early with very little technology. So we picked some small areas that we knew we could do much better than the current systems and made sure that we built that first. So that even if we were, I'll give you an example, we're a phone system, we didn't offer voicemail for a long time because we didn't think it was important. It wasn't helping our customers drive revenue. Whereas the features that we had to personalize the outreach at the right moment based off of what customers were doing did add value. So we got away for a long time with not having some features that you would, might consider to be pretty typical in a phone system because it wasn't the thing that was important. So we were then clear with customers saying, hey, we're going to help you drive incremental revenue. That is the North Star. And as both of us were aligned on that, we'd build features towards that 
And over time, the product has gotten better and better and more and more sort of fully fledged. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. A follow up on how you've found those early prospective clients to get feedback from. Is there any strategy or tactics to identify who you talk to? Because there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are starting, let's say, their B2B enterprise solution and they want to collect feedback. They go to LinkedIn. Now, what's next? How can I know this company needs my solution and who actually should I target? Am I targeting the CEO? Am I targeting a different title? How did you go about doing it yourself, Alex? So even take a step back from that, the sort of big difference, in my opinion, between B2B businesses and B2C businesses is that in B2C, you don't really need to ask for permission. You can put a landing page up, you can pay some money at Google and say, you know, want a home cleaning? And like people who want home clean come in and they'll land on your page and either pay or not pay. Also, the volume of users is such so much larger in B2C that if you make a mistake and you don't serve the customer well, it's okay. There's always another one. B2B, yes, I understand there's some PLG motion, but ignoring that traditional B2B, it's a, how to put it, you have to sort of come in and say, am I allowed to sell you this thing? They have to have a decision process and then they decide to buy your product and it's a bigger customer. So if you turn that customer, it's a bigger deal. So first of all, like, Start with, you know, making a decision of which kind of world you want to be in. The value of B2C is you can do much more experimentation, much faster, much higher volume and not be as worried about it. The value of B2B is, well, it's much more predictable, regular revenue once you do have it. And so it's easier to sort of predict out what's going to happen. I'm a convert to B2B, like after spending years in B2C, like I like the predictability of the revenue, even if you need to go and ask for permission. Once you're actually looking for customers, I think very early days, you know, you have some hypotheses about who the customer base will be and what the product will be. The hardest part about being a founder, especially early days, is to stick to your vision versus knowing when to like take feedback from some customer group about the features you have or whether they're the right customer and pivot. Pivot just meaning like go and sell to somebody else or sell a slightly different product or completely go to a different area. That's hard. I mean, I was talking to somebody on a podcast yesterday about AI and they started working for an AI company 10, 15 years ago. No one was interested in AI. No one wanted to do anything. They would have told you like it was a silly place to be because it wasn't going to ever happen. And then all of a sudden in the last two years, boom, they were, you know, the head of go to market at open AI and now were uh, part of like the biggest transition that was happening because it all happened much faster than people thought. So had they listened to the sort of public discourse, they would have left AI, but they had an intrinsic belief that AI was important. And so they stayed in that market. That balancing act between staying true to your vision versus listening to what customers are saying is really hard and just acknowledge that. When you're then looking for specific customers, I would go and make lists of all the potential segments and all the, you know, start going after them one at a time. And in our world, maybe that was, there was retail, there was insurance, there was healthcare, education, lending. We go talk to each of them. And sometimes it was friends of friends. Sometimes it was cold outreach on LinkedIn. And, you know, people are willing to take a 15-minute conversation if you're polite and to the point. And we learned quickly that in retail, people weren't that interested in talking to their customers. And they thought their conversion was fine. Versus in industries like lending and healthcare, they desperately needed to talk to their customers because it was so much more complicated, the thing that they were selling, and they needed better software. So we learned to sort of stay away from retail and focus on these other markets. 
or as we talk to people who are revenue leaders, they got it right away. They go, okay, if you can drive an extra million dollars for me this year, of course I would use this product. Versus if we talk to people who were only, so to say, on the IT side, they would start looking, well, how does it integrate with my other systems? What is the this? Why do I need this extra system? Which is the wrong question. The question should be, is it driving extra revenue? Not, is it the right decision based off of 15 other platforms you have? I think we learned sort of how important it was to talk to revenue leaders from that. We also started learning which things mattered, which things didn't. At the beginning, I had a hypothesis that a lot of people would care about compliance. And that would be an important value proposition. Because in SMS, for instance, historically, that was an important value proposition. Turned out, we work with brands that do all the right things. They are TCPA compliant. They ask for permission. They call you this only the right number of times. They don't call you if you ask them not to. So they weren't worried about compliance and that wasn't an important thing. So we removed that from what we talked about. Now, we still have a very sophisticated compliance program because it's important. We just don't lead with that. Turned out people were interested in different things. So hopefully that gives you some idea. Amazing. Take us back to your early customers. How did you convince them to join any tactics, frameworks you deployed, any non-scalable strategies you use that today is no longer relevant? We're B2B. So like a lot of the things I was doing before, I'm still doing now. So I can answer to the B2B context. And then I'm happy to answer for B2C, which is a bit different because I've been in that world too. Yeah, B2B, it was me selling. I sold the first $3 million in AR by myself in, in the first year. We went from having zero product, like literally a deck that I was using, to $3 million in AR in a year. So it can be done. I think the mistake a lot of people make is they think they have to build too much before they start selling. Don't. Like, start going and talking to customers and, you know, be honest about what's built and what's not. And, you know, if you've picked the things that are valuable for them, they'll start now, even if it's very early. That way you'll get real feedback about the product and you can constantly be iterating. What did I do? I went through friends. I went through sort of cold and reached out to people. And we tried a little bit like some other channels, but early, like it was mostly, you know, outreach. And then as we got bigger over time, like we brought in some outside salespeople that then started handling at that point, the inbound we were getting in addition to doing their own outreach. So it shifted over time. Yeah. I think that's like early for B2B. On B2C, I say the one advice I give people on B2B is I was given this advice early and I wish I'd listened to it. I should have hired like a go-to-market helping person, like more than a BDR, less than an AE. I should have hired somebody who was helping me every week reach out to companies, respond to companies, do the follow-up, all that stuff. The reason is that if there was a week when I didn't do that, then the next week I had no new customers to talk with. And as the CEO, there were always other priorities. And so it was bad when like I didn't have people to talk with. So had I just hired for a hundred grand or 120 grand, somebody to help me, it would have been much better because I would have constantly had customers to talk with. So I wish I had done that earlier and they could have learned a lot and eventually been an initial salesperson for us as a company. The point is when you're in the B2C world, think about how you hit somebody six, seven, eight times instead of just, you know, once. Because if you can do it, they believe that you are the institutional player. So we at the last company we were at would do direct mail and do big billboards and we do street teams and we do Google SEM, but all targeted one city block. So that those people, when they got up and they went to the subway, they saw our name. When they Googled, they saw our name. When they looked at their mail, they saw our name. 
And they assumed that we were doing the same thing everywhere. What they didn't know is we were only doing it for that city block. But in that city block, we could make it so obvious that we were the provider that they should use. And so they would use us. So don't spend your dollars widely, spend them very narrowly and make sure then that of those customers, you're constantly iterating on pricing and value proposition and the user flow until you figure out what's best. And then once you have a good cat to LTV ratio and a good business, then go take the same model and go do it on another city block and another and another and expand from there. How does your sales organization look today? Is it the traditional SDR, AE, and then uh, the CEO or decision maker at the end? I'd say, you know, it's a relatively traditional sales org. What's a little bit unique about us is we are in a market that's newer. So if I said I want a data warehouse, like you could Google data warehouse and there's four data warehouse players, you know, there's Snowflake and there's whoever else. And there's an established market for that. That's a market where because there's so much intent and search traffic, you can just do Google ads on the search traffic and capture people. And that's a big part of it. We're in a different market where it's much earlier in the market and there hasn't yet been sort of common knowledge that there are tools for these B2C salespeople. So nobody's going out and searching B2C sales software. doesn't exist. Where we get customers, sure, is referrals and organic and that who have heard of Regal and are searching for Regal specifically. But outside of that, a lot of our time is spent on uh, outbound. And so we have 20 SDRs, BDRs technically, but 20 BDRs on our team and only six AEs. Because this early, we know exactly who the right customer is. We know exactly who the right buyer is at that customer. We just need to reach them because they may not know to go and search for a B2C sales software. So early in that cycle, you know, outreach is much more important. The other channel that everybody talks about, but I think early you have to do correctly is uh, content. So, you know, we made a decision pretty early that we wanted the brand to stand out. And so we went and got more sort of consumer like marketing. So we have this very strong purple color, very strong sort of bold text. So when we do stuff, we want people's you know feeds on LinkedIn or wherever to be covered in that purple color with the white text talking about, especially if you're in our industry, talking about how you're going to drive more revenue for, you know through these teams. And I think we need to be constantly producing things that keep pushing this point that we're making of, you know, for these teams, you have to both be doing it very efficiently and in a very personalized way to work at scale. In the end, like a very can be very successful if you can catch people's imagination with what you're doing. If you look today at what's a category like a CDP, which is a customer data platform like Segment, you say, oh, of course, it's a CDP. But for years, Segment was out there talking about it and no one knew what they were talking about. Or today you talk about PLG, product-led growth. Today you understand what that is. But for years, this guy Blake at OpenView, who's a venture capitalist, was talking about PLG and no one knew what he was talking about. So it takes years for these things to catch on. So don't give up. Just make sure that it's a message that's valuable to people and eventually it'll catch on. Amazing. Thank you for sharing these insights. What is a principle that you live by that has helped you in your journey along building uh, Regal? Both my co-founder Rebecca and I have parents who own small businesses. And I think both of us have a similar attitude that if you make your customers successful, they'll make you successful. Forget the contract, forget the pricing, forget whatever, like at the very core, you need to be in this business to make your customer successful. And 
Sure, some customers may not sort of feel the same way, but most of the time, if you're going out of your way to make them successful, they will do what's necessary to make sure you are an ongoing successful business. And that's just sort of the inherent, especially early stage, symbiotic relationship that exists with customers. So go above and beyond. Make sure the founders are involved. Make sure you're building features that they want that no one else wants. Make sure that you're over-investing in them so that, one, they're very happy and they're successful. But two, then they go to the next person and say, I got to say, these people, like, I love working with them. It's so incredible to work with Regal. If you do that for the first three or 400 customers, the rest of history is easy. If you piss off the first three or 400 customers, you're never going to get any more because the reputation out there is going to be very negative. I think that's that lesson of like, you know, make sure your customers are successful and they'll make you successful is probably the single most important one. If you were today in the same room as your competitor, what would you tell them? I think I've had this experience. So at the last company, we ran a big outbound phone team. We had thousands of people and we used the old school contact center software. So over time, I've used or teams I've worked with have used TalkDesk, Five9, Genesis, Nice. You know, these are very traditional phone systems. And for customer service, they're fine. It's a customer service that's become very commoditized and a lot of them have very similar features and they put them in the cloud and cool. But for sales, I remember going to some of these customers and these sorry companies and saying, hey, we have this sales team. We'd like special features for this sales team. Can you help us build it? And they told us, forget about it. Our business is selling to support teams. We don't want to serve sales teams. So maybe they were right. So they have a good business doing support. So I think when I meet them, we're very open about what we do. And we say, you know, we just focus on a very different demographic than they do. They think their support market is much bigger and they may be right today. And we think the sales market is underserved and larger than people think. And so I think it's good for the customer that we have a difference of opinion than the other vendors, because that means customers in this space get a much better product because we're focused on them. Other people don't believe that they're a big enough market to go make product for them, but we do. So I think that's the conversation I have with other providers in this space is, great, you guys are just focused on a very different segment of the population than we are. One last question, Alex, what's next for Regal? So we have this aspiration to what I said at the beginning, that we can help brands treat millions of customers like one in a million. I think we're in an interesting place on a few axes for that transition. One, internally, you know, we went from being uh, just software that the sales teams use for a few specific use cases to now the we're the end-to-end software. So everything from how we get data in to what is the unified customer profile to SMS, voice, we added email, to now more sophisticated pieces like transcription and conversation intelligence. So for these B2C sales teams, we've built an end-to-end tool. If you think about B2B, it went a different way, right? B2B, use Salesforce, and then you have Gong and Outreach and Zoom Info and eight different tools put together. And that's how that market developed. So ours has developed quite differently. And I think we continue to invest in software that's going to drive revenue for our customers. On the software side, we're starting to also uh, see more and more cases where customers want to use us as their CRM, which we're fine with. They don't need another CRM. And so I think that continues to push us to build features that traditional CRMs have. And customers say to us, they'd like us to be the Salesforce for B2C. It's a very different data model. It's a very different way of interacting. It's much higher velocity. We have to build different features in Salesforce, but I think that gives us some room to grow. 
The other thing that's happening is external and is part of what I was mentioning before around AI. We knew that by having all of these calls go through our platform, all these conversations, we would be able to use the data to start making recommendations on what to do next to improve the quality of the sales conversation. So that instead of just some salespeople being good and some being bad, we could raise the level of all salespeople by using data. The extreme acceleration of generative AI has allowed us to more quickly get to some features than we thought we had, which is fantastic. So we're able to use generative AI and use some of the technologies that are out there to do things like suggesting uh, follow-up actions, making summaries of the calls, suggesting what you should say to the customer first faster than we thought we could have. I think it's a cool opportunity because we're not just reselling that API I think a lot of people are just basically reselling OpenAI, which is not valuable. We already have a huge base of customers doing all of these conversations every day. And as the sort of incumbent, we can then use AI to improve the quality of the experience for the agent and for the customer and build on a thing that we already have. And so I think that's the best opportunity, in my opinion, for AI is something like that. Over time, the question I sometimes get is, will AI get so good that to the customer it's indistinguishable whether it's uh, AI or human? I don't know. I'm not the expert there. I was talking to somebody yesterday who was implying that they think within a few years it'll be possible that it's indistinguishable. And I talked to other people who think it'll be never. Our opinion is sort of, you know, we're hands off. Like we're here to help companies driving rental revenue. I suspect that there will be human beings involved in this for much longer than people think. And the AI will be used as a co-pilot and the AI will be used for sort of low intent leads and things that humans don't have time to do. So let's say you're a company that is in healthcare and you don't have enough doctors to engage with everybody. Maybe the things that are doctors don't need to do, you'll have the AI do. And the things that doctors do need to do, you'll use them to do. So I think that's sort of the most likely setup. So that's one sort of internal trend on how we're building software, and then externally, I think how AI impacts our business positively. Thank you, Alex, for joining the pod. How can people reach you? You can always go to regal.io or email me at hello at regal.io. And we're happy to chat to folks that have sales teams in B2C industries or are in these high consideration B2C industries and are thinking about why you you should have a sales team. Great. Thank you for stopping by and we wish you the best of luck. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 